seated. If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open God's Word together. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together uh, to worship your name, uh, to sing your praises, to read from your Word, uh, to be able to come directly to you in prayer. Uh, We ask that as we open your Word this morning that you would be our teacher, that the the Holy Spirit would move in this place, that you would take the truth of your Word and apply it to our hearts and our minds. Uh, that you would show us the areas of our lives that maybe we're not completely trusting you, that you would uh, draw us nearer to you, that we would see you more clearly today than we ever have before. Uh, I pray for each person that you've appointed to be here today. I pray that you would uh, speak directly to them exactly what they need to hear. Uh, We thank you uh, that you promised to meet us in this place, uh, that you are alive and active, that your word is is uh, eternal and it it changes us. And so we ask that you would do just that this morning. Uh, We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, I've mentioned the last uh, few weeks, it's been kind of the background of of just this series and what we've been doing. It's kind of where our world is and, and how right now things seem to be so uh, divided and, and there's a lot of struggles going on. And it seems like, uh, I was thinking, uh, just an analogy for the way it seems, or this is maybe just my perception, but the way it seems lately is, is a little bit like if you've ever seen, uh, in a baseball game, uh, where the manager comes out to the umpire and, and he's really upset about a bad call or something. And if you've ever seen those interchanges, they come out. And a lot of times it starts with, uh, the manager comes out and he'll be pointing at the base or he'll be telling, and then the umpire will kind of tell him back. But then all of a sudden something changes, right? If you've ever seen those, they always like to put those on the highlight reels. And then all of a sudden he throws his hat off and they start screaming and it gets right in his face and he's, you know, like all up in his face and spits flying. And, and then usually they bump him with their chest and then they throw him out of the game. And it's like, and then every once in a while you get where they run over and they take a base and they like throw it or something in protest and that kind of thing. But, but, but in a lot of ways, I feel like that's kind of uh, the background of, of the way our country is. We've almost gotten to that place where we're, we're in each other's face screaming and yelling and, and that picture. And when you think about it, when that happens and we get to that and we kind of get to heated to that way, we're not really listening anymore. Uh, there, there's not a whole lot of listening going on. There's just a lot of yelling back and forth. You know, when the umpire and the manager get to that point where they're face to face and they're screaming and the spits flying and all that stuff, there's not a whole lot of opinions that are going to be changed at that point. There's not a lot of good that's going to come out of that. And so I was thinking about that image of that, the, that picture there of those two kind of going at it like that as the way the backdrop of a lot of the things that are in our culture right now. And so what we've been doing in this series is just looking at these different interactions that Jesus has with those around him. And what we're seeing is, is they're coming after him in a lot of ways. Jesus kind of has ruffled a lot of feathers and a lot of people are coming after him and they're not there to have a discussion. They're not really there to listen, but they're there just to try to make him look bad, to try to uh, get him arrested, to try to get rid of him. And so what we've been looking at in this series is trying to see some of the things that maybe we miss culturally, socially that were going on in that day that maybe we miss part of the story. But really what I've been trying to do is just shine a light on the way Jesus interacts in these situations. The way we see Jesus faced with these sorts of things and the way he he answers the question. But not only that, the way he interacts, the way he responds, the way he carries himself. Remember, Jesus is our our Lord and our Savior, and he does what we could never do for us. But he's also our perfect example of being united to Christ in the way we're to live in the world. And so we look to Jesus 
as the author and perfecter of our faith, but also as our perfect example. And so we're going to look at a very famous passage. Dan read it for us just a second ago in, in John chapter eight. And we're going to look at that John chapter eight, verses one through eleven. Uh, it, it's a very famous passage and you've probably heard the story. It's told a lot. Uh, it, it seems to me, in my recollection, whenever they make a movie about Jesus, or the Gospels, they always put this in there. This is always part of it. Um, it's one of just those really famous, poignant pictures of Jesus's mercy and grace in the middle of this picture of this woman caught in adultery. But it's also a passage that's actually very debated. Um, if you look and you're looking in the Pew Bibles or you have the ESV, I'm speaking for that because that's what I have. Uh, it may do it the same in the others. But what they do is they put double brackets around this and they'll tell you in the earliest manuscripts, this is not in the Gospel of John. And you go, well, wait a second. Is, is this part of the Bible or is it not part of the Bible? And what we know is scholars believe that most likely this was not part of John's original gospel and what he wrote. Most scholars believe that. But most scholars believe that it is true to Jesus. That it is an actual story that existed orally for a long time. And at some point, somebody put it into the gospel of John. So what do we do with that? Does that mean that it's that it is or it isn't? Does that erode our confidence in the scriptures? And I would just tell you that when we look at this story and when you look at all that's around this, that there's very, very few passages in all of the Bible that are that are contested like this. We have so many manuscripts and so many copies of copies and we can take all of those and we can we can get to a pretty exact measure of what we have in the scriptures is what was really written and what was communicated and what God really said. And so I don't want that to to be something that's a stumbling block for you of, oh, should this be in the Bible or should this not? What we have in our scriptures here are so well attested by all these manuscripts, we should have great confidence in it. And so if you want to talk about this passage in particular, come see me. Let's talk about those things. There's a lot more we could talk about. I'm going to leave that there other than just to say this. I do believe it is it is authentic to Jesus. And I think it's uh, in perfect keeping with everything we see him doing and saying and teaching the handful of contested passages we have in the New Testament. None of them touch on key doctrinal issues. They don't change anything about the Bible or Jesus teaching or, or the tenets of faith or the things that we say. And so don't let that throw you. It doesn't change the core doctrine of anything. And I would say the same with this passage. And so with that said. Let's look at this passage together in John 8. Uh, let me just set the scene for you. If this is the correct context that this story is placed where it should be, which there's a lot of reasons to believe that it is. Let me just set the context for you. At the end of John 7, we see the religious leaders getting to a point where they are completely opposed to Jesus and they are now trying to arrest him. Oftentimes we can we can divide Jesus's ministry up into the three years of his public ministry. Sometimes we call the first year the year of inauguration, the second year, the year of favor and the third year, the year of opposition. And what happens is Jesus grows in his fame and people are excited about what he's doing. He really starts to upset those in power. He becomes more, uh, more and more of a threat to them. And so they are seeking to get rid of him by any means possible. And so we get to the end of John chapter seven and they say, go arrest them. And they send guards and they say, go get them. And they go to arrest Jesus, but they don't arrest them. And part of it is the crowd is divided and they're a little worried. Like if we take him away, what's going to happen? Is a riot going to break out? But part of it, and this is what they tell the religious leaders when they go back. Part of it is they say, well, why didn't you arrest him? 
And they say, we've never heard a man talk like this before. Like, we don't know what to make of this guy. He, he doesn't seem like just a normal guy. And so I'm not real comfortable arresting him. And that really upsets the religious leaders. And that leads us to our story. And so what we're going to look at here is this scene that they orchestrate to try to get Jesus in trouble. And that's exactly what they're doing. And, and I'll show you why I say they orchestrated this, this scene in just a second when we look at it. But let's look at this passage together. And so in verse two, it says early in the morning, he talking about Jesus came again to the temple and all the people came to him and they sat down and he taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? And so they bring this woman and they come to Jesus in a very public place where there's lots of people around and he's teaching and they put this woman before him and they say, well, what do we do? We fought, we've caught her in the act of adultery in the Levitical law. Uh, the law of Moses tells us that we're to stone her. So what should we do? And so there's there's a historical background that we need to understand about what they're trying to do by presenting it very publicly to Jesus in this way. What they do bring to him is true. It does say that in Leviticus. Leviticus 20 and verse 10 says, If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. That's the Levitical law. That's what Moses wrote, what God inspired. And he says that. And they bring him, this woman, before Jesus. And they go, ah, that's what it says. Now, what do we do? Now, now here's the dilemma. When that was written in the Levitical law, Israel was a nation state in which the sins of the people had uh, civil uh, penalties that went with it. They were a sovereign nation state. But now Israel is under the oppressive rule of the Roman government. Israel as a nation state has no authority to put anyone to death. Right. Because they don't have that authority now because Rome is over him or over them, over Israel. And so what they do is they bring this woman to Jesus knowing this, like we've got them. We've got them in an ironclad case here. We're going to lay this woman before him and say, should we kill her or should we not? Knowing full well that if he says uh, kill her, yes, that is what the Levitical law says. Then they'll set, turn around and they'll tell the Romans he's against you. You need to arrest him. He's not keeping your laws. If he says, no, we don't kill her, then they'll say, well, he doesn't believe in the law of God. He doesn't believe in the Torah. So it's like they've got him. Aha. We'll do this very publicly and we'll show him and we'll surround him with this. Now, there, there's a question I want us to consider before we get back to the story. Just take a step aside for just a second. I just read to you Leviticus 20 verse 10 tells us that if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, they should be put to death, they should be stoned. Deuteronomy kind of gives us the rest of it. Take them publicly into the town square and stone them. What do we do with that? I mean, I just read to you. That's what the Bible says. I can give you chapter and verse of what it says in Leviticus. What do we do with that? I've heard people frequently say uh, Christians are hopelessly uh, inconsistent in the rules that they choose to obey. Right? And, and they'll give you chapter and verse. Leviticus says that if a woman's caught in adultery, you should kill her. The man, too, not just the woman, which that's part of what they've got wrong here. We'll get back to that in a second. 
But they come and they do that. And, and so what, what should we do today, though, when we hear that or when we read that? The objection comes. Uh, well, the Levitical law also says uh, you shouldn't eat pork. Uh, you shouldn't eat shellfish. You shouldn't wear shirts that are made from two different materials. And they go, see, Christians do all those things. But they say, no, we're not going to stone the person who commits adultery. We're hopelessly inconsistent. Is that fair? Have you ever considered how you would answer that objection when somebody says that? I mean, it does say that. It does bring you to kind of like, okay, well, what do I do with that? And so I want to just talk, talk about that for just a second, and then we'll get back to what Jesus is dealing with. Is that a fair criticism or not? And the point here that we need to see is we need to place these things clearly in their context with what God was doing and where he was in redemptive history. And so at that point in the Old Testament, what we have is God gives a sacrificial system. He gives a ceremonial law and he gives a moral law to help his people, the nation of Israel, worship him. And what he's doing in that, and he gives them all these sacrificial laws of the things they bring to the temple and the way they sacrifice and the way they approach God. They have all these ceremonial laws that go with it. You have to wash it a certain way. You can't eat certain foods. You can't touch certain things. And all of this was to show the people vividly over and over and over again that humans are spiritually unclean and cannot go into God's presence without purification. God was very deliberate in what he was showing and teaching them. Remember, he took these people and he brought them into a nation and he put them in the middle of the known world, surrounded by pagan nations that did all these horrible things. And he said, you're going to be different. You're going to be holy before me. You're going to be set apart and different from the rest of the world. So I want you to abide by these laws and these rules. And so they did. And they did all those things as God told them. And as a sovereign nation state... They also had civil things, uh, civil laws that went along with these sins if they ignored God. Like if a woman and a man commit adultery, you will kill them. Now, that seems crazy to us. Does it not? You go, whoa. God was teaching the seriousness of sin before a holy God. And it sounds so crazy to us because we are so far removed from the holiness of who God is. But he gave those civil penalties to a specific nation at that time and that place. God was their king. He was their leader. They were a nation set apart to show the world what God was like in a very specific way at that time. So what do we do with all that stuff now? Ceremonial law, sacrificial law, the moral law, the civil law. How do we take all that today? And I would tell you, it all changed when Jesus came. Not that God changed, but the way we respond to God changed. We no longer need a ceremonial law or a sacrificial law because Jesus is now our perfect sacrifice that makes us clean. Thanks be to God that we don't have to go through all those things to enter into his presence. It's all what Jesus has done and nothing else. And so we no longer hold to those ceremonial laws of cleanliness because we're made clean only by what Jesus does and nothing else. The same is true with the the sacrificial laws. Jesus becomes the once and all sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. The whole point of the book of Hebrews shows you that. But what do we do about the civil part? It goes back to Leviticus 20. What do we do about the, the clear uh, penalties of you've done this, so now the response is this. You've committed adultery, so now the response is you are stoned outside the city walls. 
And the picture that we have here is that they were a nation state to show the world what God's like. Now, today, who shows the world what God is like? You are now a holy priesthood, a royal nation to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of the darkness. Friends, it's us. It's the church. It's no longer a state or a nation or a small group of people. It is those that have been united to Christ and now are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We now show what the world is like. And so we as a people are not a sovereign nation state who has civil laws that come along with the penalties of sin. No, we do that within the church. And so when a brother or sister is walking in unrepentant sin, we bring them before the church and we do church discipline and we seek to correct them. But then we allow God to convict their heart and change them. We don't kill them. You see the difference? God is still God. God is still holy. God still cares deeply about sin. That brings us to the other part of the moral law. How do we look at the moral law? It's still intact. And in fact, it's reiterated over and over again in the New Testament. God reaffirms all those things in the New Testament. And so when somebody says, oh, Christians are just woefully inconsistent, it's a misunderstanding of how all of those things point us to Jesus and his finished work. And that's something we as the church need to be able to know how to answer. That is something that we should be able to go, well, let me explain that to you. We're not being inconsistent. But I want to go back to the story here because we're in a unique period Israel is is still sort of a nation, but they're under the laws of Rome now. And now we're at this point where Jesus steps in and all of this is now in the midst of changing. And so how do we take this? What do we do here at this story? And so they think they've backed him into a corner. It's a no win situation. You either defy Moses or you defy Rome. You defy Moses and we'll cry heretic and we'll say we don't have to listen to you anymore because you don't hold to the word. You defy Rome and you're going to get killed. That's what's going to happen. That's what they do. You defy Rome, you get nailed to a cross very publicly so that you can see that we're in charge. That's what Rome does. And they knew that. And that's what they were trying to push Jesus to. But I want to point out to you, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they're not coming to Jesus for a discussion. This wasn't a two-way thing of we really want to know what you think on this issue, Jesus. It actually tells us in verse 6, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against them. There, There was no like, hey, I really want to know how he interprets this. It was, we've got you dead to rights, and now we're going to show everybody. That's why they bring it in a very public place. And I keep being struck as I read these things and these interactions, and I think, man, these guys would have made great politicians. Isn't that exactly how our political system functions now? We're not actually interested in a dialogue. We're interested in making the other side look as stupid as possible. So we can say, aha, look at how dumb they are. And we're so smart. And that's exactly what they seek to do to Jesus here. We've got you. And so they're not asking because they want to know. They want to bring a charge against them. And so look at what Jesus does in light of this. The end of verse six, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What was he doing? What's going on here? 
Right? They ask him this question and they surround him. There's a riot about to break out. They want to kill this woman. All this stuff is going on. And they ask Jesus the question and he stops and bends down and starts writing in the dirt. And he must have done it for a minute because it says there in verse seven, they continued to ask him. So what is it? And he's writing in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. I've heard a lot of sermons where there's a lot of conjecture on what he wrote and why and those different things. We don't know what he wrote. I think what we know historically from the context, if if John's right in, in the if the context is right, that this is where the story takes place. Chronologically. It was on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath you can't write anything down because that would be considered work, like with actually writing it down. But you could write in the dirt because the wind would come and blow it away and it wasn't permanent. I know it's a little ridiculous, but that's kind of how they got to. And so I think part of what he was doing is he writes in the dirt to kind of show him, I know your laws and I know the way you guys operate and I'm operating in them. And he writes in the dirt. And then he stands up and the context gives us an idea of what he wrote, because then he says, let him who was without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. I had a professor who used to say, I'm pretty sure he wrote stoner in the dirt or or she's sentenced to die or or like Leviticus 20, verse 10. I, I don't know that. That's me guessing. But based on the context, the fact that he now says, Uh, You without sin can throw the first stone. That would make sense. But I don't know that for sure. And so he brings them to this picture. And he shows them that he knows what the law says and he knows how they operate. And he says all these things, but then he radically reframes the law. He says, you who were without sin can cast the first stone. So when Jesus says that, who can throw the first stone? Who there could uh, now stone her? Who could give this penalty? Jesus is the only one. And they suddenly start to realize that and to see that. And I want you to think about what he's doing when he does this. Jesus being perfect grace and perfect truth and perfect balance and perfect humility. And so he reframes the whole thing in light of this. And he says, you who are without sin can cast the first stone. And suddenly it dawns on them that they're all sinners. It takes a minute. It says they start to leave slowly one by one, starting with the older. It takes a second for it to come and fully dawn on them. But that's what happens. And I want you to think about what he's doing by reframing it. See, they were using the law as a way to get Jesus and back him into a corner. Do you think anybody there really cared about this woman? I don't think so. From the context, it says they were just doing this as a way to have a charge to bring against them. Do they really care about the law? Are they really zealous to keep God's law? Because it tells us they caught this woman in the act of adultery. Leviticus 20 says that you stone the adulterer and the adulteress together. Where's the man? Right? If she was caught in the act and were really zealous for the law, where's the guy? I think that just shows you that they weren't. That's not really what they were doing at all. They didn't really care about the law. They were using the law to put certain people in this place and to humiliate them and try to back Jesus into a corner that they could humiliate him. Is that why God gave us the law? Is that the point of the law? 
No. I think we can say there's, there's three uses that God gives us of the law. And the first is to show us how to live. Or, or guardrails. I used to have a professor that said the law in the Old Testament is guardrails to constrain our evil. Think about a guardrail on a road. It's when you get out of sorts, it keeps you from flying off the road. And so God gave us the law to show us the way this world works and to help us to live within those parameters. But the second use of the law is to then show us that we haven't kept it completely. None of us. It's there to show us that we've fallen woefully short in keeping the law. We haven't kept it. And these guys here are using it to humiliate the woman and, and put Jesus into this corner and, and bring a charge against him. And they're not using the law in the way God designed it at all. But you know what the third use of the law is? The second shows us that we haven't kept it. The third is to point us to our, the Savior that we desperately need. And I think Jesus is showing them exactly that, that he is that Savior. They completely missed it, and so he reframes the whole thing. And he's saying, not only does she need a Savior, but you need one too. And I think the way he does it, and the way he interacts here, just confirms that we're staring at the Messiah, God in the flesh. You know, in Isaiah, it says that when he prophesies about the Messiah... It says, a bruised reed he will not break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. Standing before him is a bruised reed that they want blood and they're ready to kill. And Jesus steps in. And he says, you who without sin can cast the first stone. And then all of a sudden they all start to disappear. And this truth, the second use of the law that we're all sinners, we're all in desperate need starts to dawn on them. And they start to realize, yeah, I can't do that. In fact, it says the older first and then the younger. Socially, culturally, the oldest would kind of make their decision and everybody would look to the older guy first. And then he'd drop his rock and, and I go, oh, yeah, we better. Right. They, they knew the law. I mean, think about the way Jesus reframes it. You who without sin can cast the first stone. Uh, Isaiah 53, we are all like sheep who've gone astray. I'm not going to throw the rock. The scriptures clearly tell me that I'm like a sheep that have gone astray. Or Ecclesiastes says, surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And they knew this. And so Jesus graciously shows their need. He graciously reframes uh, the whole argument to show them where they've gone off, where they're wrong. And it shows us where, where we're wrong. All of us. And he reframes it in that way. And he meets them where they are. And I think about our world today where we start to misuse the law. And I'm going to say you're wrong and I'm right. And now I can beat you up with it. And Jesus reframes the whole thing. How we desperately need more of the way Jesus responds here. He handles it perfectly with grace and and truth in showing them right where they are. We've fallen into using our beliefs at different times to make other people look bad 
rather than to show that we are all desperate sinners in need of Jesus. And Jesus takes it and shows them that they're all sinners in need of a savior. And he makes it so clear. And it begins to dawn on each one of them. And it says he once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So he says this. You who without sin can cast the first stone. And then he turns around, and he goes back to drawing in the ground. What's he doing? I don't know. I don't know what he wrote. I'd like to know. Maybe one day we can ask him, what did you write in the ground? But I think what he's doing is he's presenting them the truth in a compelling way. And then he leaves them to wrestle with that. He doesn't gloat. He doesn't ridicule. He doesn't respond in the way they do. Me and my sinfulness, they come and they try to show me and you're wrong and I flip it on them and I prove them all wrong. I'd be like, aha, I got you. But what does Jesus do? He goes back to drawing in the dirt and he just and they slowly walk off one by one. And you see perfect grace and truth with perfect humility in the way he responds to all of it. And they begin to stream off. We need this. We need to look more like our Savior in our interactions. We speak the truth with humility and love, caring about the person, not trying to be right. And then letting the Holy Spirit do the work of convicting. Instead of seeking to be right so I can say I'm right. It's not the way God responds to us. He shows us where we're off because he's gracious and he's kind and he's merciful. And it's to be corrective to bring us back to him. We, too, as his people, should be the same way. Jesus is right. He's always right. He is the truth. He's perfect truth. But he does it with grace upon grace. And so they leave and they all walk off. And he turns to the woman He stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, sin no more. He turns to the broken woman who's wrong. Right. The way they handled it was wrong. She's humiliated. She's thrown in front of them with a crowd around ready to kill her. But she was wrong. She was caught in the sin. She was living this destructive behavior. And here Jesus turns and he looks at her and he says, does anyone condemn you? And she says no. And so he offers her forgiveness. Even though she's wrong. Even though she deserves the penalty. And he steps in and he saves her. You realize Jesus puts himself in very real danger by standing up and saying what he said. But he does it. And as I read this story and I look at it, if I'm honest and I try to put myself in it, I see myself in the crowd. In my own self-righteousness ready to throw stones. 
that's right, they're wrong, and this is what it is, and that's what it says, and that's the end of it. But yet there stands Jesus reasoning, lovingly taking the law as a mirror and turning it back. And you go, oh, yeah, I'm just like that. But the truth is, if I really stop and think about it, oftentimes I could place myself in the story as the woman. It's just openly rebelled and ignored everything that God says and gone my own way and do what I want. And then there Jesus stands saying, I don't condemn you. Offering his forgiveness. That is what our Savior looks like. Whether we're self-righteous and so sure that we've got it right or we're broken and we're falling apart. And in both of them, he says, I forgive you. And that's where he meets us. We're called to look like that. Which is really, really hard. It's really hard when you feel like you're right. It's really hard when you feel like you're zealous for God's word. And I want it to be upheld. And I want it to be defended. But we forget the grace and the truth together in perfect humility that is our Savior. There's one last part of this. Notice the very last thing he says to her. He says, I don't condemn you. But then what's the last thing he says there? And from now on, sin no more. Jesus is perfect grace and perfect truth and perfect balance and perfect humility. And so he doesn't just say, hey, it's okay, you're forgiven. He says, you're forgiven. But when you understand the way I've forgiven you, my grace changes you. And so you go and you begin to live this way. That doesn't mean you're going to live it perfectly. That doesn't mean that when you see that, then everything falls into place and you live perfectly and you never sin again. But it begins to change our heart. Notice the the way in which Jesus says it. Neither do I condemn you. He offers her forgiveness. And then out of that forgiveness and his grace, you now seek to go and live that out. You're saved by grace through faith and what Christ has done and nothing else. But when we see that, it changes us. And we begin to live out of that truth in response to what Christ has done for us. What a glorious picture of our Savior. What a glorious example for us to follow in the way we respond to other people. And the truth is, none of us can do it on our own. Not even close. But united to Christ by faith through grace, as he conforms us to his image, he can begin to change you from one degree of glory to another. Thanks be to God that he doesn't leave us where we are. That he continues to show us and shape us so that we can be the light to proclaim what he looks like and who he is. Oh, that we would do that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the glorious truth of your word. I thank you for the glorious picture of your grace to us. I thank you that you don't leave us in our sin, that you speak the truth into our lives. That through the spirit you come and you convict us in the ways that we don't follow you. In the ways that we forget. I thank you that you remind us when we become full of ourselves, of our great need for you. I thank you that when we are struggling mightily with our sin, that you remind us that you've forgiven us and you love us. And we thank you for that.
I pray that we would live out of the truth of these realities and the way that we respond to each person we come into contact with. That we would be full of grace and truth with humility in all things. We pray all of it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.